like with you, like for you to turn with me to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. We've been uh, doing this mini-series, or it's turned into a longer series in the Psalms, and it's asking and answering questions that we all have. We looked at Psalm 121, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And, it, and we looked at that, and we looked at what the psalmist has to say there. Then we looked at Psalm 100, where does my joy come from? How do I have joy in the midst of everything else in a sea of a world that's not joyful or doesn't bring joy? Then we looked at Psalm 34, where is my courage? Why am I afraid? How do I have the courage that the Lord intends for me to have? The question for today that we're going to ask and answer is found in verse 31 of Psalm 18. For who is God? He asked that question. Now he asked it rhetorically, who is God but the Lord? But he's asking that question, who is God? Why would he be asking that question here in the middle of this psalm? That was my question this week. And do we ask that question in our world, who is God and I want you to know people in our world are beginning to ask that question and they're beginning to deconstruct God what they what they're doing is they're laundering the scriptures and they're they're washing God out and they're washing miracles out and they're washing everything that that might not be just kind of logically understood anything that might be supernatural is being laundered out of the scriptures deconstruction looks at a person's life look at Jesus life oh well yeah the resurrection oh, that's a, a miracle so that probably didn't happen and but but him teaching those things did happen and and so they they why are they doing that they're doing it for a simple reason because they're disillusioned with god have you ever been disillusioned with god you see suffering in the world and you can't seem to explain it. You can't seem to handle it. And, and, and so you struggle with it. Lisa Gunger of the, the uh, Gunger, uh, it was a Christian group, uh, Michael and Lisa Gunger. They, uh, she went to Auschwitz. And when she went to Auschwitz, she saw all the horrors that happened there. And then she had a cousin who had, had uh, uh, cancer and, and she prayed for her to survive and she didn't survive. And so she changed her theology. And now she calls God Divine Mother God. Here's someone who was walking with the Lord and she's redefined God. Why? Because she was disillusioned with God. We find ourselves crying out to God. And at times we don't get the satisfying answer that we want. And so what people do is they decide, I'm, God, there must be something wrong in my view with God. And so they change it. And the reality is this, just because they changed their view of God doesn't mean suffering all of a sudden went away in their life. It's still there. They're just trying to explain it differently. And what they're actually doing is they're going through suffering now without hope and without God in this world. Because they've redefined him, they've deconstructed him, they've changed him, they've redefined him. And we think, how would somebody do that? It's, it's, I mean, these are people who are walking with the Lord. They were actually pastoring or co-pastoring a mega church. And they walked away. Because they cried out to the Lord and they weren't satisfied. 
You ever been there? David was there. We see that in this psalm. That's one of the reasons why I picked this psalm. Because he says in verse 6 of Psalm 18, In my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help. Have you ever had those moments when you're sitting in your room and you're crying out to God? You're sitting in your car and you're crying out to God. Over my life, there have been a lot of those times. As a pastor, I've gone through those times with uh, members of our church family who are crying out to God and we're crying out as a church family for God to do something and then it didn't happen the way that we prayed. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to respond to that? I love how Joseph responds. We are, uh, uh, my wife and I, doing the Bible recap, and we're in Genesis. And uh, as we've uh, uh, just recently this week looked at the life of Joseph, and Joseph went through a 13-year stint of unfairness, of being treated poorly by his brothers, of being sold into slavery, of being sold to Potiphar, of being misunderstood, even though he's innocent, thrown in an Egyptian jail and left to rot. Yeah, he was lifted up in the jail and he was serving there, but nobody remembered him, not even the people that he helped there. And you can imagine how easy it would have been for him to say, oh God, help me, it's been 13 years. When are you ever going to listen to me? In fact, I thought about doing Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord? And yet I think, how long, O oh Lord, we, you know, with this COVID thing, it's only been a year. Yeah, it's been a year. That's a, bit of a tough year. But it's only been a year. He's, he went through 13 years and then he went through seven more years of famine after that. And you think, wow, 20 years of this stuff. David going through difficulties in his life as we're going to see here in a minute. And you cry out to God and you wonder why he doesn't answer. If there's a good God, why is there suffering in this world? And so people have tried to redefine God. They've been doing it for years process theology people had tried to decide they said well he's all good but he must not be all powerful and so therefore he needs our help it's called panentheism that God's in this world but he just you know he's not completely all there right and needs our help that's not the decision that David made it's not the decision that Joseph made. Joseph told his brothers when he had the opportunity, they're kneeling before him. He's the second in command in, in Egypt. He could have said, take these guys out and I want a slow death for these guys. They sold me into slavery. He could have been the most bitter guy ever. He did test their hearts. He did test to see what they were made of and he saw their, the pain and the sorrow in them their repentance in them and it broke him he wept he forgave them how did he do that he saw the hand of God he was looking for God in this for 13 years he was looking for what God was doing and he told his brothers what you meant for evil God intended for good he sent me here on ahead of you so that I could save our family and this and these people from starvation wow 
That's perspective. He didn't redefine God. He saw God's hand. He was looking for it. I see David and he's called a man after God's own heart. And, and here he is in his distress. He's called out to the Lord. In fact, that word distress is a tight place. What do you mean a tight place? Well, he tells you in verses 4 and 5 what kind of tight place this is. So look at verse 4. He says, the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. He uses three pictures. Cords, a river, and snares. He uses cords twice, but then he uses torrents of water and snares. The picture of cords being bound up. You ever felt bound up, tied up? You can't get loose. You feel like you're, you're, you're just struggling and you're just all just tied up with, with whatever's going on and, you're, and it's suffocating you. Torrents of destruction. You ever feel like a drowning person going down for the third time? That's the picture he's given here. He's being sucked under. He's being drowned by being overwhelmed by the things that are going on in his life. Snares of death. Snares. A picture of a trap. Trapping uh, an animal, a bird or whatever. He uses these three pictures. He's, he's not doing well. And he says, in my distress, in this tight place, I called upon the Lord. And interestingly, in the rest of the psalm, you hear, in my tight place, I called upon the Lord, verse 6. You look at verse 19, he says, he brought me into a broad place. And then you look at verse 36, you gave me a wide place for my steps under me. It doesn't say he took it away. It doesn't say he took away the difficulty. But he gave him a wide place, a broad place when he was in a tight place. And so we, we look at this psalm and we say, yeah, but, but David, he, he, God answered your prayer. It says in verse 6, for the temple he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. And then you read 18.7. Uh, then the earth reeled and rocked and the foundations of the mountain trembled and quaked because he was angry. And you kind of go, yeah, now, now God's working, right? It says, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. This is getting kind of scary, but, you know, but he's still involved. God's, God's answering the prayer and he's, he's defeating the enemies. And you can read all the way to, to verse um, 18 talking about God destroying his enemies, David's enemies. And so you think that this happened immediately. After David pray. I want to give it some context. This is one of those psalms that has a header, right? So you go back up to the header and you think, okay, I want to, I want to understand this header, the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies. So that, that day that he was delivered. And from the hand of Saul. What? Why would you add that phrase? So you go back to 2 Samuel. I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel 22. Go back to 2 Samuel 22 because there, there's a situation here and we've got to understand the situation to understand this psalm. 
Because we think immediate response. I cried out, immediate response. There's plenty of times where I've cried out and didn't get immediate response. I didn't get what I wanted. I didn't get uh, what I thought that I needed. And so we tend to redefine God at those moments and kind of go, we think that's what's expected because of Psalm 18. No, we got to understand it in its context. Now, I'm not going to read chapter 22 for you in 2 Samuel because it's Psalm 18 restated. Wow. He just sticks it in the situation in his life. What just happened? It says, from the hand of his enemies. So you go back to, to chapter 21, 15, where it gives you the immediate context. And there were, uh, to kind of give you the short form, there are four wars here with the Philistines and all of them involved giants and in all of them, David defeated the enemy. And after the first one, the, the people said, hey, David, you're getting old, so just, just don't show up for the battle anymore. We'll, we'll, take care, we'll take it from here. And so he has four defeats of the enemy and you think, okay, that's what he's talking about. But from the hand of Saul, that's at the beginning of 2 Samuel 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 1, if you back up there, because we, we have to kind of get the context, right? It says, after the death of Saul. You say, okay, what happened after the death of Saul? Well, David was anointed as king. He was put in the place as the king of Israel. He was about 30 years old. He brings the ark into Jerusalem, we see in chapter um, 6. In chapter 7, we see the covenant with God affirmed that God speaks to David and, says, said, and tells him, you're going to be a forever king in my forever kingdom. Wow, how incredible is that? And then David defeats the Philistines in chapter 8. In chapter 10, he defeats Am, uh, the Ammonites in Syria. And you think, you'd think that this psalm that's put in chapter 22 would be next. That it would be right there as chapter 11 or maybe the end of chapter 10. And if it was there, I would understand it. But it's not. I want to show you what happens next. In chapter 11, David sins with Bathsheba. In chapter 12, he's rebuked by Nathan and his newborn son dies. In chapter 13, Amnon sins by taking his daughter Tamar and defiling her. And, and then he kills, and Absalom is so furious, he kills Amnon. So two of his kids kill each other, or, or one of them kills the other. In 14 to 17, Absalom runs David out of Jerusalem. David so cares about his relationship with the Lord that he allows Am, uh, Absalom to kick him out because he's trying to get right with God. And then Joab says, enough of this. He sees Absalom hung in a tree and so he kills him by his hair and he kills him. Even though David said, don't do it. David re is rebuked by Joab for mourning too long for his son and then Sheba rebels, and then we have the four things, where the four uh, battles with the Philistines. And then chapter 22 with Psalm 18. And so it's not this rosy picture of life, and then boom, Psalm 18. It's this rosy picture, and then this horrible 20 year problem internal in his family because of sin on his, on his part. 
that Psalm 18 occurs. That's the context. So it's not this immediate deliverance. It's deliverance as a picture of the overall picture of his life. He cried out. There are times that he cried out and he didn't see immediate deliverance. He cried out for his son to live, a newborn son, and God said no. So what is he saying in this song? He's saying, I cried out. From his temple he heard my voice, verse uh, 18, verse 6. And my cry to him reached his ears. But God is sovereign. He can do what he will, right? And it causes us to go back, though, and we wrestle with, and it's a healthy wrestling if we come back to God is God, right? But he's, that's why he's asking the question, who is God? Because at those moments in our lives, we're asking that question, and yeah, we see God's deliverance, and, and we see him working, and we see his power. But we still ask the question, who, in fact, is God? I love David's conclusion. We see this in 2 Samuel 23. And I want you to see this as we get into this psalm. Here's his conclusion. Or does not my house stand so with God? Kind of sounds like Joshua, doesn't it? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's saying something very similar here that, that he, he has asked the hard question, who is God? And he comes out with the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. And who is a rock except our God? I think this is a key part of the psalm. I think this is the key pivot point in the psalm. And the reason I say that is because he only mentions the rock in three places. In, in, in verse 2, in verse 31, and then in verse 46, those three places. So he begins a song, God, you're my rock. He ends a song, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock. And he asks the question, who is the Lord? Or who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? That rock, that hiding place, that rock, that place of security, that rock, that place of refuge and protection. I think about the guy who wrote uh, the famous hymn. Uh, uh, his name was Top Lady, Augustus M. Top Lady, or Top Lady, or however you pronounce his name. And he was traveling in a country when in the country when a storm came up, and he hid in the cleft of a rock. And then he wrote, "Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself." In thee. That's the picture of David here. My rock, the place of refuge, the place of strength. In fact, we see that at the beginning. His conclusion leads him to write this worship at the beginning where he says, I love you, Lord, my strength. Verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The very beginning, I love you, Lord, that, that word for love there is a word that's uh, in the Hebrew is very close to the word for womb. 
And so the picture there is the kind of love, the kind of intimate love that a mother has for her child. That's an intense kind of love, isn't it? There's not uh, hardly, I don't know of another love on this world that's as intense as that, that's as intimate as that. And that's the picture that he chooses to use. My love for you is like that. And I don't think it's just an emotional statement on his part. I think it's a statement of faith. I love you, Lord, with that kind of intensity. I love you because I believe in you. I love you. I've asked the question, who is God? And I've come to the conclusion, it's Yahweh. It's God. It's the God of the universe. It's the creator. It's you. Personal relationship. See, it's not talking about just kind of this, oh, this holy other or this God concept or it's this personal relationship with God. And we know from the New Testament that, it's, that it comes about when a person receives Christ as their savior and God gives them eternal life just because they believe. David understood this. And he understood this, we see, because of verse 20. I'm going to skip over some of, some of the psalm. I can't, don't have time to read it all, so I encourage you to come back and read it later. That, that whole section right after his prayer is, is God's deliverance. But then he goes through this section in verse 20 where he begins to talk about his own righteousness. He says, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. And I'm thinking, oh, really? <laughs> Which righteousness? Are you talking about 2 Samuel 11 there? Your sin with Bathsheba? You're a sinner. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. You think, what, David? You allowed Uriah the Hittite to be killed. Bathsheba's husband. Are you talking about that one? So what does he mean, according to my righteousness? He's speaking of grace. He's speaking of God's grace. You can read the rest of that section. And he talks about this, his righteousness and how God rewards him for that. And, and you look at that picture and you think, how does, how did, why is he saying that? It's because, and Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 4, that David understood the grace of God. That it wasn't based, that his righteousness was not based on his works, but rather on his faith. We see that in Romans chapter 4 with Abraham and David. Paul uh, says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, now to the one of, who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but was what is due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then he says, David understood this also. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David understood the grace of God. He wrote Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 as, as psalms of confession of his sin, of recognizing who he was before God, that he was nothing, that he was born into sin. And so when he talks about this, Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, it's really his righteousness, God's righteousness through David. One thing that David did not do was give up God. 
He did not give away his relationship with God. I think it's so important for us to understand this because if we don't understand this, when I was wrestling through that this week, I was thinking we, don't, we won't understand why sometimes God says no. I mean, sometimes God says no because he has a better plan. I'm sure Joseph was praying that God would not allow him to be sold in the first place to these traders that were traveling to Egypt. And it seems like God abandoned him. He didn't abandon him. God had a greater plan. What his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And God sent him on ahead to be able to deliver his brothers, right? So God had a bigger plan. And and we need to understand that that bigger plan sometimes means that we have to struggle. Sometimes it means that we have to suffer. Sometimes it means we have to die in order for that plan to be accomplished. When I think of Lisa Gunger and she went to Auschwitz, you think, what happened as a result of the Holocaust? A lot of people died, right? Six million Jews and others beside. And yet something happened as a result from that that has never happened in the history of our planet, and that is after 2,000 years, a nation was reborn. The nation of Israel, to accomplish God's prophecy, and those lives were not in vain. They, they had an incredible purpose. And you may not like the purpose. You may say, well, that's not enough. That's not a good enough reason for me. One day we'll understand God's reasons in his ways. We only see dimly right now. We don't see clearly. We don't understand. We're like little children who didn't get their way. And we don't understand what God has in mind. And the God of the universe has greater plans than we could ever imagine. And so even though I look at that same situation that Lisa Gunger looks at and she came away, coming away with this idea that, that God isn't who he said he was, I'm standing with David and saying, who is God? It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. Who is a rock? God is that rock. Who is the one, verse 30, this God, his way is perfect. Yes, it is. His way is not understandable sometimes, but but it is perfect. The word of the Lord proves too, I don't need to go back and deconstruct it and launder God out of the scriptures and launder miracles out of the scriptures and kind of come to the real story behind the scriptures. This is the real story. These things actually occurred. Jesus actually rose from the grave. And David believed that because he says in verse 46, the Lord lives And blessed be my rock. He's not just a a carved idol. He's not just some concept in our head that we've deconstructed and we've come up with this, this concept of God. He is my rock. He is my shield. The horn of my salvation, my stronghold. It's he is the one that I call upon. It's his word that I look at to give me insight to understand what it is that he has for me. The deliverance that we see here, I think is not only deliverance in regard to uh, uh, an enemy, but in ancient times when you were delivered from an enemy, you were also delivered from their God. Whoever their God was, the Canaanites, Baal, Ashtaroth. And Baal was the one who was the God of thunder and the God of storm. And you kind of look at this whole thing here that David's talking about and the quaking of the earth and, and the smoke going up and, and, and all these things. You realize he's addressing the gods around that this God is not the God. Who is God? It's Yahweh. It's not Baal. It's not Ashtaroth. It's not anybody else. It's not some, something of my conception. In Romans chapter 1, we see that that. 
that uh, mankind has typically replaced the truth of God for a lie. And so we began to believe what, what we have created, what we have come up with. And so we cry out. And we don't get the answer that we expect. Doesn't mean we need to change who God is. It's interesting in verse 41, you see the enemies of David, they cry out too. It says they cried out for help, but there was none to save. Why? Because they weren't looking to the true God, the only God, the one true God. They cried out to the Lord, but he did not answer. And that part I went, wait a minute. Why did he not respond to them? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one reason is because they were going to trample whatever it was that was said. In fact, Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, don't cast your pearls before swine lest they trample them. And he's saying, don't give truth to those who are going to disrespect the truth. Do you think that God would do the same? That if we're not going to embrace the truth, that he goes, I'm not giving it to you. I'm not going to respond to you right now because I know what you're going to do with it. You're just going to despise it. You're just going to throw it away. Ephesians chapter 4.30 says, don't quench the spirit. So if I'm praying that God's spirit would move in me and then I'm planning to quench the spirit I'm giving a mixed message to the spirit of God which one's he going to respond to is he going to respond to my pushing away or my asking they cried to the Lord but he did not answer them I think do we do that I asked myself the question this week, do I do that? Do I misunderstand the grace of God and I, and I begin to be a demanding child where I'm just expecting from him and, and if he doesn't give me what I want, then I decide that I'm just going to redefine God. I'm just going to change him. I'm going to make him a God of my own liking. We got that struggle internally within us. Tara Lee Cobble this week in the Bible recap, she quoted a little poem. I thought it was great. It says, two natures beat within my breast. The one is foul, the one is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate. The one I feed will dominate. So which one am I feeding? Am I feeding bitterness? Apparently Joseph didn't feed bitterness when he was uh, imprisoned, when he was uh, enslaved. He didn't feed bitterness and when his brothers came, he wept to see them. He wept to see his father and he forgave them. Incredible, incredible. I can't imagine being sold and turn around and forgive the person who sold me. Think about it. Which one did he feed? Which one did David feed? He didn't feed this unbelief one. He didn't feed some sort of deconstruction and, or, or give up some, his God for some other God. Who is God? It's Yahweh. And who is a rock? Our God. Um, I mentioned the Gungers. Lisa Gunger saw uh, Auschwitz, had a cousin that had a bout with cancer, and so now she refers to God as divine mother, saying, I love the way of Jesus, I just don't have a definition for that. 
Richard Rohr, who, was a, who is a Franciscan friar in Albuquerque, New Mexico, has become popular in deconstruction circles. Uh, he holds that God is both the masculine and feminine together rather than either a binary or dualistic thinking. He's written a book called The Immortal Diamond, The Search for Our True Self. And here's what he suggests about Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection is an archetypal pattern, an example, for the individual's movement from false self to true self. So in other words, all Jesus' life was was to help me save myself from myself, not to save myself from judgment. The influences that Rohr has had are Buddhism, Hinduism, Gandhi, Carl Jung, spiral dynamics, and integral theory. I had to look that one up. What is integral theory? That is just that the idea that evolution not only applies to the material world, but it applies in the area of culture and consciousness. And so they're trying to pull together science and religion, Eastern thinking and Western thinking. Pre-modern, modern, and postmodern thought, and trying to pull them together and come up with a idea, a theory that ties them all together. The trouble is, is once you do that, it means you start tossing out stuff. They've already tossed out who God is. You can see that already. Who Scripture says that He is. In progressive Christianity, we see deconversion stories. Cademan calls, Derek Webb wrote a song called Fingers Cross. He says, he he gave up, uh, he he calls it uh, his song of two divorces, referencing the divorce from his wife and the divorce from God. He says, so either you aren't real or I'm just not chosen. Maybe I'll never know. Either way, my heart is broken. So goodbye for now. So he tells God, goodbye. And that's his song. And so we got to ask ourselves the question, how did David come out? How does Joseph come out with who is God? I think they understood the other options. I think they understood maybe some of the things that we're going to talk about. Maybe they couldn't define it this way, but when you, when you look at the world around us, there's a lot of people seeking after a lot of different kinds of gods, a lot of different definitions of God. And as they do, they, they, they begin to search out Hinduism or Buddhism or they begin to search out these other religions in the world. And there's thousands of religions. You can spend a lot of time looking at different religions in the world. Or you can understand that every single religion falls under one of these seven worldviews. And then all you have to do is deal with the worldview. And any religion that falls under it would also fail for the same reason. You have theism, which is Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, believes in one God, that God is infinite and personal. You have deism, which looks the same, but it's different in one aspect, and that is in deism, those who follow the concept of deism believe that God can't do miracles today, that those are impossible, those would mess with the the, uh, scientific system, and so they're not possible to do. The problem is, And the failure of deism is that if God can do the one great miracle creation, don't you think he can do some of the smaller ones and that's where deism falls? Finite Godism has the perspective that there is one God, but he's finite. Or polytheism, there's many gods, but they're finite. They're personal, but they're finite. 
Panentheism, which is also a finite God view, believes that God's in process. It's also called process theology, that God is somehow needs our help. He's good, but he's not all powerful. That's how they explain evil. And so they say, well, he wants to help. He's got good intentions, and he really needs us to just help, our, help one another, and that's going to help him. The problem with all three of these views is God is finite. And a finite needs an infinite to start it. And so those three views fail because there is no infinite God that created or caused them to be. If they're finite, they haven't always been. And so that brings us to pantheism. Not panentheism, but pantheism. That's the one that you see with the New Age movement. That's the one that you'll see with different religions of the world. Pantheism has this idea of God is just a force. Star Wars, right? The force be with you. And so this idea that God is just this impersonal force in the universe and we just need to tap into that force and that's where our strength comes from. The problem with pantheism is this last word, impersonal. The impersonal cannot cause the personal. A rock cannot cause people to be with personalities. It doesn't explain us. It doesn't explain us with, with intricate the design, this idea that we have this intricate design that we have been created with. And so it, it, it fails for that reason because it doesn't explain that. The impersonal cannot cause the personal. The, the, uh, and so only uh, uh, theism explains that one. And then atheism believes that there is no God. Some have tried to include agnosticism in that because they're both non-God views. The problem with that is agnosticism is really a view with looking for a view because if you really don't know, then you should be looking for to know at least a position, which would include theism or some other system. And so the failure with atheism logically fails with really one question. Do you know everything? Nobody does unless they're God. And so we don't know everything. God can exist where we don't know. And so atheism fails for that reason. And so it's only theism that stands. And theism with Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, if Jesus rose from the grave, and I believe the evidence is strong, then Christianity is the only faith view that stands, which means that God is who he said he is and that the God of the scriptures is who he said he is the God of David Yahweh is the true God and no other system stands up in fact with uh, Michael uh, Gunger uh, he when he describes his view it's kind of interesting because here's what he calls himself He's an epiphatic, mystic, Hindu, pantheist, Christian, Buddhist, skeptic, with a penchant for nihilistic, progressive existentialism. Imagine sticking that on a sign in front of your church. <laughs> That's what he thinks of himself. And you look at that and go, wait a minute. Hinduism, polytheism, doesn't fit with pantheism, impersonal force, which doesn't fit with Christian, which doesn't fit with Buddhist, which is actually an atheistic position. With nihilism, which means life is meaningless, existentialism, living in the here and now. I mean, how do you pull all that together? I mean, he must be believing in integral theory. He must be a follower of Roar, I'm guessing, because he's somehow he's 
trying to piece all that together and say that's what he is. Either that or he's just a skeptic and he doesn't care and he's just saying that so you'll go away and not bother him. But when I look at the scriptures and I look at the fact that, that I think, you know, I don't like evil in the world either. I don't like suffering in the world either. But making God go away doesn't make evil and suffering go away. It's still here. No matter what view you take, you've got to deal with that. The pantheistic view will say, well, reincarnation. But they're still dealing with the idea of suffering. They just say you're just going to be suffering a whole lot of times. In order till Atman meets Brahman or whatever. And you, you look at their position, you realize, no, it doesn't. It fails. Because it's impersonal, it doesn't explain why we exist. I believe and have come to the conclusion, as I've looked through those seven different worldviews, that only one stands among the rest. And it's based on Jesus' resurrection from the grave. He is alive. I serve a risen Savior. I agree with David. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock. I agree with David. Who is God but Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? And what that means is, is that I need to be willing, we need to be willing to choose his way and not trample his truth underfoot. We need to be those who don't quench the spirit but embrace it. Even in the midst of suffering and pain, David wrote this psalm in the midst of great suffering and pain that he experienced for at least 20 years of his life. And he saw the hand of God at work. Joseph saw the hand of God at work in the midst of dungeon, in the midst of slavery. He saw the hand of God at work. What men mean for evil, God means for good. We see suffering in this world. Yeah, I don't like it. But I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Father, we come to you this morning. That there is a tough world that we have around us. We've all prayed for people that have had COVID or other things and they've died. We've prayed for others and they've lived and we struggle, Father. We want your will to be done as you taught us to pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we ask for that. Help us when we don't understand. Help us not to change who you are in our minds and our hearts. Help us to be like David, a man after God's own heart. Help us to be like Joseph. Looking for your hand at work. Father, we do cry out to you for those things that we desire most in this world to happen. Lord, give us the grace to accept whatever answer is from your hand, knowing you are good, knowing you are powerful, knowing that you are our rock and our refuge, even in those moments when we don't understand, you're still our refuge even then. And we need to come to you. Those are the times that we need to pray to you and, and come to you. And, and, and you've promised to be near to us. That you'll never leave us or ever forsake us. Lord, help us not to push you away. Help us not to quench the spirit. Help us not to trample underfoot your truth. Father, help us to embrace your word. 
Help us to grow in you. Help us to follow you. Because you are our God. You are our rock. You live and you are blessed. Blessed be my rock and the God of my salvation forever. Lord, we love you. We worship you today. We pray that you would guide us. Help us to be a good testimony to those around us who are struggling. Help us to be those who are not sucked in and drawn in and nearly drowning. Help us to be those who are standing strong in you and can help be those who, it says, you're the one who lights our lamp. Help us to be those who you use to light the lamp in other people's hearts and lives. Help us to simply be just faithful followers of yours. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.